Welcome to the Waitlist Podcast, broadcasting to you from the land of horses and bourbon, Louisville, Kentucky, by way of Washington, D.C. this time. Uh, we are at the National uh, Conference, NASFA Leadership and Legislative Conference and Expo. My name is Tom Golden, and I'm here, as always, with my friend and colleague, Brad, and we are on the data science team at Capture Higher Ed. How are you doing, Brad? I'm doing well, Tom. Uh, we are in the... Uh Lovely hotel lobby bar of the Washington Hilton. Yes, uh, at the hotel bar. Uh, this is a first. Uh, we're in a bar, so I cannot guarantee any at all uh, that there would not be cursing in the background. Uh, we're here with an American Legion conference. Uh, we definitely appreciate their service. Uh, but, uh, you know, hey, it's a, you got sailors sitting around. Uh, that might have a little bit extra to say. So I'm just apologizing right up front. Uh, all right, so... <laughs> What, what if I just swear a bunch, Tom? We can. We can bleep it out. We haven't we, gone that route before. We, we, we have not. So uh, it, it's it's always it's always fun to uh, to take a visit to the nation's capital and to be here for oh, yeah. uh, a, you know uh, and any reason is a good reason to be in Washington D.C. But Tom, I was curious. You know, do you do you get here often? First of all, and what what do you what do you like about coming to D.C.? Yeah, I don't I I don't get here very often. So there's really two things, actually. One is when you're flying into Reagan National, uh, it's just you get this phenomenal view of some of the most famous buildings in, um, you know, American architecture. Um, and then two, I, I don't know, I, I don't tend to get into the museums or those things, although I, I certainly recognize how amazing they are. I, I just like the way D.C. is laid out. It's, a, it's an incredibly well-considered uh, uh, design and just the the neighborhoods in Dupont Circle where we are is uh, it's just it's just really well put together and, and obviously it was designed that way to to be welcoming uh, to um, not only welcoming to foreign diplomats but also uh, in a way uh, create a sense of awe and so yeah I think it's one of the most uh, attractive cities um, if you look particularly as it relates to architecture and just the way to walk around. Um, how about you, man? It's, what, it's, what about it's you? got like a Parisian style urban planning. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, wide boulevards and, you know, uh, sort of low slung buildings rather than giant skyscrapers. And it, it just feels like, I think, really the the only the only city in the States that has uh, at least initially, maybe on the, on the outskirts, but initially had a sense of true urban planning, a, a city that was built from the ground up. For sure. Um, I don't know, man. I. First of all, I, I, I always like to sort of think about things that are named after George Washington because we have so many, you know, we have, uh, you know, the District of Columbia, we have the state of Washington, yep. we have so many universities and so many colleges and so many things that are named for Washington that it almost has become, it, it's easy to forget about the first president who was just such an amazing human being. Yeah. Um, despite all of his historical flaws, obviously it's easy to pick apart uh, the fact that humans at any given historical era are uh, complicated. Um, but I like the fact that it's named for our first president. It's pretty amazing that we have this place and it's named for Washington himself. Uh, but there are a lot of things I like to come and visit when I'm here. If possible, I always actually like to go to the archives and see like the yeah. original founding documents. Yeah. It's super cool to see all those, uh, all those signatures. Um, but I also will just throw out there that I really like eating in the District of Columbia. It is an amazing mm -hmm. food city with like just great kebab shops next to amazing, you know, fine dining. So I love to eat my way through the city whenever I'm here. And uh, it's, it's, it's fun to be here, man. It is also a great city for beer. And so one of the reasons that we're in the hotel bar is to get an opportunity to, to introduce to you um, our, our, our interview for this week. 
um, but also to enjoy a beer too. So Brad, what are you enjoying this afternoon, this fine afternoon in Washington, D.C.? I'm drinking one of the great beers that has ever been produced by the world uh, by Arthur Guinness, a straight-up Guinness stout from Dublin, Ireland. It is black and tall and beautiful, and I'm very excited about it. Absolutely. And I'm enjoying a Vienna lager from Devil's Backbone, which is a Virginia brewery. So cheers to you, my friend. Cheers, Welcome Tom. to D.C. Yep, welcome. Let's talk some financial aid. Let's do that. And so we are here actually at the NASPA Leadership and Legislative Conference and Expo. Um, as presenters, we had a great opportunity, I think, to present to the enrollment management track on predictive modeling and where uh, we think those uh, that that where that field is really going. Um, had a blast doing it, and uh, we, we just really appreciate that opportunity um, and the many people that um, put that all together. Uh, but today's interview, we had an awesome opportunity, Brad, to sit down with Justin Drager, who is the president of NASFA. And probably uh, next to our conversation with Amy Gadara was one of the this really the, the best uh, policy discussions that we've had on the podcast, which we were really excited about. We tend to, to speak at the institutional level, but you know, above the institutional level, there's kind of this local level and the state level and the, the federal level, and we, we tend to not get into into policy conversations very often. But obviously, one of the biggest um, influencers of what colleges and universities do are the you know the legislative environment. Um, at any one of those levels. Um, and so it's really, really fun to uh, be able to talk to someone who not only um, understands federal policy in such a deep way, but also has um, relationships and has ad- and, you know, an advocacy role um, with NASFA. So uh, we, we think that, uh, that everyone out there will, will find this to be a pretty interesting discussion. Um, and Justin just turned out to be a really, uh, really welcoming and really good guy. So we, we had fun. Absolutely. Uh, so here's Justin. So we're sitting here with uh, Justin uh, Drager, who is the president of the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. Um, thank you, you so much. You for got it right, it. so that's always good. You I got did. Our names. Okay, I, I, a lot I of words. <laughs> so fantastic. <laughs> How long have you been in this role? Um, I've been in this role for almost nine years, and I've been with NASFA since let's see, 2006 is when I started. What year are we in? 19. So do the math. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 12, 13 years. Yeah. I, that's a that's a, that's phenomenal. It's a long and, tenure, and, yeah. and even in that short amount of time, I mean, uh, financial aid just continues to shift and change, and yeah. keeps it interesting. I imagine, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so uh, we do. So NASFA does basically three things for people who don't know anything about who we are. We're we, we're an association like any association. So we do like advocacy work and lobbying work, focusing mostly on like the Higher Education Act, which governs all of our programs, and then we do events like this. So we're at our Leadership and Legislative Expo. Like we let like associations get people together to network, learn from vendors and exhibitors what they're offering and product solutions they have. And then we um, do training. So there's a lot of regulations they have to stay within and uh, our members look to us to help them figure out what those regulations are. Very good. So uh, yeah, we'd, we'll go ahead and uh, get started, yeah. I guess. Um, it's always interesting, you know, we have spent, uh, we've, we've done quite a few of these podcasts and we rarely are in an actual policy space. And so it's, a, it's really cool to have someone who is uh, educated and knowledgeable and actually works in policy advocacy. So if we can ask a super broad, high yeah. level question, you know, what are things right now that are going on at the federal level that in your view are things that um, any enrollment manager, financial aid director, someone who works at a college and university should be thinking about in terms of, uh, in terms of policy? Yeah, so I'll say three things that I think will could greatly affect the enrollment management model or 
um, or at least should be causing people to rethink it. One has to do with loan indebtedness. So students are more, um, what's interesting is uh, there's a, a significant number of students that don't borrow at all. Um, and then you've got a significant number that are borrowing, but they're borrowing at reasonable or modest levels. And then you've got a small number of people that borrow low levels, don't make it through school and default and go delinquent and have all sorts of terrible things happen to them. Lawmakers and people running for president and policymakers, everybody's talking about loan indebtedness. So whether that's capping loans, which that gets into the available amount of aid that schools will have to award, or capping loan benefits like forgiveness, um, student loans are going to be on the docket uh, in federal policy. The second big thing I would say schools would want to be paying attention to has to do with transparency. So we, enrollment management um, is in a bit of a weird model in that um, it's sort of like the airline model where I don't, I paid a price to get on this flight and you might be right next to me. I have no idea what you paid and I have no idea right. what you paid. And, and so it's a bit opaque. And, and that's for good reason. You, you have to think about the class you want to make up. You have to think about the sustainability model of the school. Like, you have to stay in business. Um, but along with that means that you have to pay extra attention to transparency and how you tell students how much aid they're getting and why they're getting that amount of aid and what's renewable. And so lawmakers are really focused on how schools are disseminating information. And then the third big thing I think schools ought to be thinking about from a federal policy level are incentives. So lawmakers want schools to enroll low-income students and help them graduate. And um, if you're not doing a good job of enrolling a lot of low-income students or helping them graduate, they're thinking about things like, do we withhold the amount of financial aid you would get? Um, sure. So those are the, the big things happening theme-wise, thematically, at federal policy. Well, let me ask you just a, a follow-up on the very yeah. first one you talked about, which is uh, loan indebtedness, yeah. correct? Right. Um, I, I used to work in a position where we would often try and calculate these, um, these loan amounts, the average loan amount. And uh, as you know, our podcast focuses on data. And I think this is something that is, is sort of an ongoing discussion where at any level, they're, they're going to say, this is the average amount of student debt that students are taking out. And to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the way it, it was just a several years ago when I used to calculate a lot of these numbers personally, was the amount of loans that are being borrowed by folks who borrowed. Yeah. And we had this ongoing and almost like existential philosophical debate <laughs> over do you include everyone and impute them as zeros? So let's say there's 100 students, 20 of them borrow. Right, which brings your average way which down. Which brings your average way down. Right. And I, I know that this probably isn't like exactly a policy question, but when we're talking about um, the average, these numbers get thrown around in the media a yeah. lot. This is the average amount of student debt. And then there's if you really look at the number, what you're talking about is the average amount of student debt for people who borrowed. Yep. And then, of course, you can disaggregate it by program where you're right. like, all right, medical school and law school and things, those students can take on a lot of debt. But there's a reasonable argument that that debt is a, a good investment because the payment in those fields is largely going to yeah, yeah. Uh, return that investment. So to our data savvy crowd, yeah. when, you, when you hear these numbers as a policy person, you know, maybe you're meeting with a member or maybe you're having this discussion. What would you say when, when we're talking about that average number? Do you think that it's a good metric that we're talking about the average amount yeah. for those who borrow? So, or do you think that we should be talking about some something else? Well, it's that's a really good question. And and to your the question you embedded in there is like, how much does this matter to federal policy? Like a lot. A ton. Because lawmakers in hearings or press briefings will will cite numbers that if you know the data, you know that they're citing a very specific 
data set mm. that yep. might not be representative of the entire population. Let me, can I answer that question by being a little meta and then I'll bring it back, okay? By all means, okay, answer here's, however you see here's, fit. Here's yeah. a meta question that we struggle with as a country. Is there a student loan crisis, okay? It, th this question has been answered 20 different ways and the answer to this question, I think, the most honest answer is, do we have a student loan crisis? And I would say we do not have a systemic student loan crisis. We have student loan borrowers who are in crisis and a growing, and that number is growing. So, so that's, that's like a, a, I guess a, a, maybe a too cute way of basically saying what you're saying, which is like, we have about half of students today that don't borrow anything. Right. Um, that's, that's, not, that, that's not a crisis. Also, it's not a crisis just because um, we're not talking about amounts that are anywhere near mortgage amounts. Sure. Um, it's it's 1.5 trillion, but it, as you guys know, data guys, like a number by itself means nothing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. One, so what? It was 1.5 trillion. Okay. Yeah. Relative uh, to what? Exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. So so we don't have a crisis like that. But but for students who are borrowing, what's so bizarre about loan debt is, if you borrowed only five to seven thousand dollars and dropped out in your first second year. Um, you there's a there's a good chance you will be in crisis you don't have a degree you borrowed for a credential you never received and you haven't upped probably your the ability for you to earn more money and those are the people in it almost inexplicably counterintuitively that default and then because of default they have fees and interest and default fees right. those people are in crisis yep and, and and so just to be clear you're you're making an argument that they're um, that the often the oft trotted out uh, political totem of here are students who have one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt. They might not be as big of a deal as the larger number of students who have a smaller amount of debt, but who don't have the degree. Yeah. So the the people who have one hundred thousand dollars in debt had to make meet academic progress requirements to continue through school and probably have an advanced degree. Sure. You can't get into that much debt without an advanced degree. Sure. I mean, everybody's going to be able to find one example. We, Leaving aside the outlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're very good at what you do. We, don't, mean, we, we don't, just met, and I can tell you know what you're doing. <laughs> Policy should not be driven by outliers. So that, that's, that's our objective. Tom, I, I think we need to make a bumper sticker. No. <laughs> Policy should not be driven by outliers. No, it's Thank you. True. That's a great answer. We appreciate that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really fascinated. I, I had a chance to, uh, and we were very uh, honored to be able to present. I also had a chance to sit in on, get a session just, just a second ago. Uh, that just concluded uh, about uh, with financial aid directors and VPs talking about um, issues that they face. What keeps them up at night? Yeah. Um, and one of the some of the issues people brought up lots of different issues that you know, you're advocating for uh, on behalf of the organization, on behalf of universities, uh, with lawmakers and their staff. Um, what I found fascinating was, particularly when it came to uh, let's say uh, let's say loan forgiveness versus caps, um, how there was this tinge, or at least uh, my interpretation was. A tinge of, of, of distrust from public policymakers that, well, if we make this better for consumers, if we make it where there is forgiveness or there's caps, that will just simply give colleges free, you know, the sort of a carte blanche to be able to raise whatever prices they right. want. How do you have a constructive conversation when it, that seems to be just a, almost a basis of very low trust yeah. in organizations and, and quite frankly, um, a misunderstanding of how university costs are actually set? Yeah. How do you have that conversation when you're when you seem to be operating within that context? Within so that framework? people who are going to be successful in public policy and advo advocacy are going to realize that there's data, and the data tell a story, and then there's a story disassociated with data, and both are important. And so um, 
are schools, so the question at hand with should there be lower caps on loans for graduate students, the question at hand then is, um, on the surface, it's very easy to connect a dot, a, a narrative that says schools that, uh, if we allow people as a matter of federal policy to allow graduate students to borrow up to whatever amount cost of, it costs to attend that school, that schools will have the temptation to increase the cost to graduate students to cross-subsidize for other students or other programs. Um, now, that might not be the story the data is actually telling, but that's an easy narrative, and you have to tackle both of those things and admit that the, the risk of an issue might be enough for us to try to enact change. And in this instance, what you saw in that session were some people supported capping loans for sure. graduate students. Sure. Other people were very concerned about what that would mean for their students' access to grad programs. So um, it's, it's a very... It's very complicated, and it's a very tight needle for us to try to thread. It, it is. I, I always wonder, you know, the level of, of discourse that you can have on something that really is actually um, compl relatively complicated and, and interdependent on each other, and lots of the about what the costs are, are what whether there is actually a, 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 a student debt crisis, um, and. I mean, what level of education do you feel like you, you, you have to make across? Tons, yeah. tons. And federal policy work and lobbying work is not done in a night. So you have to have long established relationships. So when we have a conference like this, we bring in like 300. Um, this is a leadership conference. So we're bringing in sort of our, our top level, really engaged members. And on Wednesday, um, tomorrow, we're going to have all these people go up to Capitol Hill to establish relationships. Like they're not going to go up and change somebody's mind tomorrow who has a narrative in their head. But these established relationships pay off down the road as you educate and try to bring people up to speed on what the real issues are and what the data says. When, when you have conversations, you know, uh, you know, particularly with members or with their staffs who have <laughs> read a bunch of policy yeah. papers and are deep in that world as well, um, and you bump into to a conversation where there is a sort of discrepancy in the data or a two, two narratives. I think one of the common ones, which... Uh, I'm loath to say it out loud um, for fear of what your reaction will be, but okay. we'll, we'll go Bennett hypothesis. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. There are people who are just going to believe um, that, you know, elevated amounts of aid in the system have have causally led to increased tuition rates. Right. There are uh, there is a uh, an entire discourse on this in the literature that suggests that. Probably not the case, but potentially is the case. And of course, you brought up this fungibility issue where no matter what you can prove in the data, if one dollar can't be tracked all the way through and allocated 100% of the time, right. um, you can't 100% prove that a dollar wasn't spent on something. Yeah, and, and I get it. Like correlation, not, correlation doesn't equal causation. Like, can be a weak argument. It, to... it, it, it's a if we had a dollar for every time someone said that on our podcast, right. we'd have like four or five dollars. <laughs> but my question to you is, you, you know, you go and you, you speak with someone who has, who has in their mind yeah. that idea. And you have in your sort of arsenal of information, data points that either don't support that or directly contradict that. What does that conversation actually look like? Yeah. So most of the time, uh, this is, this is counter narrative to probably what most people hear out in the country, in the press and in the news, because 
I, I love, I absolutely in love 100% and support journalism. I, I want to make that clear. But journalism is built on a conflict. If there's no absolutely. conflict, there's no story. That's I mean, absolutely right. community newspapers, maybe it's sort of like so-and-so at a lemonade stand and everybody says, great. But in, <laughs> in, in most journalism, people are interested in where the conflict is. And, and there's lots of legitimate conflict that's on the up and up. But where I'm going with this is most lawmakers want to make things better for their constituents. And so when you come in with data that shows this is what's happened to your constituents, most, again, lawmakers and staff will want to hear. And occasionally, rarely, thankfully, are there lawmakers who just won't hear you. That, that happens rarely. Most lawmakers say, all right, explain to me the issue. Um, now, that's not to say when they get out in front of a camera, they're not going to say whatever tight 15-word soundbite that's going to get them on the news. But most lawmakers are in it for the right reasons. And in, in the student aid access issues and how that sometimes collides with enrollment management issues and need-based aid and merit aid, um, most lawmaker staff want to hear how it all works. And uh, I think the, the, we find success in, in trying to establish long-term relationships and explain how this all fits together. It's complicated. Yeah. That sounds like, but I want to say one thing about the Bennett hypothesis. Right. As you brought it up, okay, yeah, and I, I think you know you're you're an expert in this. Um, for those of you who at home are unfamiliar with the Bennett hypothesis, Justin, would you enlighten yeah, it's, folks it's, uh, it's, as a primer, and then you can go into it? Yeah, in it's depth. it's basically it was it was uh, uh, hypothesized by Secretary of Education uh, Bennett uh, decades ago, who basically said that by pumping so much student aid into um, into the market that it's colleges would inflate their their costs and on a on a very basic economic level that that makes sense this is the same sort of argument that's used with minimum wage too you increase wages then it's going to translate into costs the, the problem with that is it works in a very simplistic model and not in a very complicated model where there are about a dozen different subsidies that pay for any individual student to go to college what we found is there's no correlation with thankfully not, we're not even talking causation, no correlation with grants. Grants, need-based grants, do not increase costs. They just make college more affordable for poor kids. Um, loans is a little bit of a mixed bag, and I think we have to be honest about that. Um, loans in particular, especially at the graduate level, there is some corollary data that's not causation, but that shows that sometimes schools do respond to higher loan limits, and at least it looks like corollary. Yep. I'm okay having that conversation. We can have an honest debate within that framework as long as we all agree that this is what the data is actually showing. Sure. It, it seems as though in recent years, the, the Bennett hypothesis has had slightly more evidence of it existing and being there. I'd say 10 years ago, if you studied that issue, you would have found very little support for it. And so the loan, the loan component is, is actually quite compelling that perhaps as loans have gone up, that there is perhaps a little bit of wiggle room in the tuition rate based on the fact that students can borrow. Well, some so of this you, is you, you just taught me something. I actually <laughs> hadn't thought about that. And well, it's really interesting. some of this is exacerbated by the fact that in the last 10 years, schools are getting less funding from states or communities. They have to engage. like. Who would have thought 10, 12 years ago that community colleges would be doing some sort of enrollment management? Like that, that just, these are open access, low cost institutions, even like public four years. Um, but now almost all first and sometimes second tier public four year schools are doing sophisticated enrollment management models. And that's because of lack of funding. And so loans fit into this piece. I'm gonna stop short of saying they're a driver, but 
I can admit that there is some corollary conflicting evidence that, that loans and tuition sometimes move together at, at certain levels. It's very interesting. So, uh, within the past two years, and I know your, your, your primary focus is on federal level, but yeah. you know, last two years, 12 states um, have enacted some legislation on free, either free community college, free tuition, um, and, and, and there are many, uh, you know, in coming up here on the 2020 election that I've talked about that at the federal level. Is that is there a position that NASFA has on those hybrid programs? I know this is a bit maybe down the road because there's not an actual co concrete proposal in front to react to. Right. But just in general, uh, do you see these as uh, as a substantive move uh, that that actually has an effect on affordability? Or is it similar to kind of the no loan um push that came, let's say, three or four years ago, that was a really big thing, got a lot of press, and then it just sort of faded and went away. So um, as a NASFA has not articulated a specific position on free college at the federal level, um, but I'll give you my impressions anyway, which is I I'm, I'm very sour on free college at the federal level. Um, now, at local and state levels, I I I'm much more open to it because that's sort of the idea of the republic is that states should experiment and we can learn something in, in terms of federal policy. But at the federal level, um, in a world of limited resources, it wasn't that long ago we were facing cuts in the federal Pell Grant program, which is like the federal grant program. In a world of limited resources, I think we should actually figure out who needs aid and then award it accordingly. And that didn't used to be a controversial idea. Um, so <laughs> I, I actually think we should figure out who would most benefit and who needs it and then give out limited dollars accordingly. Yeah, fair play. And so not to mention that there is no such thing as free. No, and yeah. I'm not talking about public support. I'm talking about the more schools take from the federal government, the more beholden they will be to the federal government. And if we think the federal government's going to do a you know, whiz-bang job of running higher education, I just put me in the naysayer crowd. Sure. Um, so anyway. Let me ask you, while we're, while we're talking about Pell Grants, um, it's come up already uh, at, at this meeting about the recent study that was done that found um, how institutions responded to the public information about how well they were doing about enrolling right. um, Pell Grant students. And then, of course, because there's a hard cutoff or there's sort of a threshold on who is eligible for a Pell Grant, um, students who were just outside of that boundary were being sort of penalized because incentives, as we've talked about a number of times on our podcast, incentives matter. Yeah. And large organizations as well as human beings respond to incentives in fairly obvious ways. Um, my question to you is, and again, this is a measurement question. We're kind of nerds in this space. But when we talk about the percentage of folks who are getting a Pell Grant, um, is that telling the story because the Pell Grant has such a wide range of the amount that you can get? Yeah. So, so a student who gets $1 a Pell Grant, in theory, yeah. counts in that bucket, right? $100, they are Pell but yeah. $100 okay. is yeah. the minimum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the precision. Right. That's great. We, uh, we, we joke sometimes, but $100 is the minimum you can get. Somewhere right. around there, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the minimum changes because we, of appropriations, but yes, go yeah. ahead. Yes. This is the, the level of detail. I'm here. sorry. I, I'm loving. It. No, this is perfect. <laughs> but I understand yeah. the, the theory. The, the, what, the, what we're talking. Okay, so so let's say that approximately $100 is the minimum Pell Grant, depending on okay. appropriations, uh -huh. and a student gets $100 to apply to their $25,000, you know, a year college yeah. or university. Uh -huh. They count in the Pell eligible bucket, right? Like they count as a student who yeah. ended up on campus and was awarded Pell. Yes. Right. Right. And so that is what we're we're talking about here. Yeah. So I think maybe where you're going is like, is this a good or appropriate proxy for low income students or how well we're serving underserved or underserved populations? Uh, part of it. I mean, 
most of my thinking on this is just that the Pell Grant doesn't, unless you're at a low-cost school anyway, it doesn't cover that much anymore uh, to begin with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is, I think, ultimately my question, which is, are we measuring low-income access in a way that, you know, if we had more robust data or if we had a better measure, that you would, you would measure it that yeah, way? Yeah, so the study that you talked about up front basically looked at, um, it was from two researchers, one of whom was at University of Virginia, and what they looked at was naughty and nice lists. So these are lists that are published by magazines that basically say these schools did a really good job of enrolling low-income students as measured by whether they qualified for a Pell Grant. Yep. Proxy, yep. okay? Proxies are everywhere. That's how we kind of do federal policy. But in this instance, what they showed after time was schools that were on the naughty list that you know were shown not to be doing as good a job as enrolling and graduating low-income students moved up the list. The problem was that when they dug deeper into the data, they found they moved up the list at the expense of middle-income students. Absolutely. So they were still enrolling wealthier students. They enrolled more low-income students, but then the students who fell right outside that Pell Grant band were enrolling in fewer numbers. Well, is, isn't it possible also that if you were to disaggregate at the amount of the Pell, that what they might have done is gotten more, in theory, just more the Pell students, but those Pell students were getting less Pell on average, so they were qualifying as being in the bucket, but they were actually much wealthier than the poorest kids getting the Pell. So I, I, what I'll say to that is maybe. Okay. I'll hold that open on me, but, I, but I, it's the distribution of Pell is not uniform, and it's not a bell curve. It is weighted to full Pell. So odds are, if you qualify for a Pell, you most likely qualify for a full Pell. Because it is based on what? Um, because it's looking at student income, parental income, and assets. And what we find is this pretty big divide where um, most people who qualify for Pell just don't have a lot. And so they're getting the full amount. And they're getting the full amount. And so when you look at the distribution curve, you're going to see it's 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 only skewed yes, off to one side. Okay. very skewed. Got yeah. it. That is helpful. I've, it's been it's been gnawing away at me. This yeah. wasn't originally one of our podcast questions, but I've no, been, it I've, could be. But... I've been I've been thinking about that quite a bit. Where the Pell non Pell binary is also bumping up against what we would consider to be sort of a scaled variable within Pell, right. which is anywhere from one hundred dollars, depending on appropriations, yeah, all the way up to tell me the limit now it's six thousand dollars, fifty nine hundred. Yeah, yeah, we're just above six. We're going into territory which is just above six thousand. And don't quote me on that. Now I have to. Uh, don't quote me on the hundred dollars. But it's a it's a formula that's like ten percent of the maximum Pell amount. Understood. Applicable to appropriation. So Got now it. I have, I should look up what the Pell chart says. But Got it. that said, it's a it's definitely a skewed curve. So if you qualify for Pell, most likely you qualify for full Pell. Interesting. Thanks. So let's talk about. Uh, Transparency and packaging and helping families understand what it is that they're being offered. So start me out. What is the what is the sort of starting position for for NASA on uh, recommendations for transparency and packaging? Yeah, so um, NASFA's recommendation, we have a code of conduct, and to be a member institution in good standing with NASFA, you have to adhere to that code of conduct. And part of that code of conduct says that um, you will do a minimal amount of things when you deliver a, a financial aid award notification or letter or whatever you want to call it. Um, so the, the basics are that you have to list the costs of the program and cost of attendance. Total cost of attendance. That's right. So preferably broken down by billable and non-billable. So these are estimates. These are what you'll owe the school. Um, then you have to have a section for grants and scholarships. In other words, aid that doesn't have to be repaid. Um, and then you have to display net cost. 
um, and the net cost being costs minus grants and scholarships or aid that doesn't have to be rated. Then your final section is self-help aid, which would be work study or loans. So these are things that you either work for and earn or you have to repay them. Um, and that can be used to demonstrate how you meet the rest of, of the need. That seems really basic. I think most schools who are paying attention are doing that. Um, but we've seen enough examples of schools that aren't doing a really good job of being transparent about that, where they have an alternate definition of net cost that includes loans. That's a huge no-no. That's yeah. terribly misleading. Um, or you have schools that just don't correctly label loans as loans. Yeah. Um, that's that's way outside the bounds of best practice and in conflict with our own code of conduct. So um, we would support legislation that would basically codify our code. And uh, yeah. if you want students to be able to compare and shop, we have to be using similar terminology, standard definitions. And um, we'll never be able to, to have a uniform letter just because any student is going to have like 20 different things that are making up their funding package. Um, but we can have some uniform layout yeah. and terminology. Yeah. I had come across, in preparation of talking to you, came across a, uh, a, a study, I'm sure you're aware of it, a study from uh, New America about when they looked at 515 uh, award letters. Mm -hmm. So they found that uh, of the 455 colleges that they that offered an unsubstandard uh, student loan, they found 136 unique terms for that loan. This is a, this is a, right. a pretty standard named program, including 24 that did not include the term loan. Um, and out of the 515 letters, uh, one third did not include cost information. Yes. So uh, on the study, I think it's helpful in raising the issue that some of this is not, uh, most of it, I think, is not nefarious. It's like no, no, more definitely maybe not as thoughtful. And so a system limitation might be like, I use a system that only allows 20 characters. Exactly. Like, uh, da data totally. friction. Right. Like th this, this study, immediately when I read this, I was like, here are a bunch of antiquated computer systems that don't have space exactly. for what we're trying to yeah. transparently describe. Yeah, I can't, they're, they're, I've met absolutely zero financial aid people that have sat there and go, you know what we're going to do? Right. <laughs> I, I, we're going to well, throw these, again, these kiddos off. There's probably an always an outlier. But, well, yeah. maybe there is. But by and large, I, I think it's that. probably just not as thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but it's got to, it's got to be fixed and um, we're on board. I, I think New America does a good job of highlighting an issue. I take some issue with the methodology. We don't have fair to enough. get into it. No, Bottom no, line enough. is yeah. there's enough of an issue that we ought to address it. Yeah. I, I, yes. Absolutely true. Uh, when, so. when we're done recording, will you be willing to get into it? <laughs> because I'll get into there, it on the record. Because there's, there's nothing we like more than talking methodology. But this is a whole rabbit hole. No, I, I understand. We'll, we'll, we'll do this another time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but in, in terms of the, the transparency of the um, of the packaging. Yeah. There's obviously this conversation about how do you communicate that to students and this, you know, New America study and what your uh, sort of statement of good principles, yeah. is that what it's called? Ethical principles your, and our code of conduct. Your code of conduct. What, what that's laying out is a, a way to transparently explain what a student is actually getting and what they'll be paying. What what would uh, NASF, NASFA's um, position be on just the price discrimination in general and sort of data-driven use of um, the fact that student A is going to pay something different than student B, as yep. you alluded to with the kind of airline comparison. Yep. Um, is there um, a, a, a conversation about not just what the letter says, but what the underlying numbers are and how those were produced? Um, you know, I think most lawmakers understand and get the fact that schools are, at the end of the day, whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit or public, have to keep the lights on have to pay faculty. This is a very um, human resource driven industry. So cutting costs, frankly, there's only so much we can do here. 
Um, and so I think most people understand that we need a sustainable business model. And if you aren't, if one of your, your sources of revenue gets shut off, like state appropriations, mm -hmm. which over 15 years have gone steadily down. Now we've had some slight increases in recent years, but the, the long haul projection is down. If that gets shut off, then schools have to find other revenue streams. And the way they do that is a lot of times by seeking full payers, whether that's international students, out-of-state students, um, wealthier students, you know, these sorts of, these really complicated financial models, when you start changing a variable, it changes other variables. And uh, in retrospect, it all seems like, well, of course, that's what happened. That's really hard sometimes to model out with any assurity. So sure. um, I don't think anybody, in, on, I don't think there's any real movement to get into that level of like school should uniformly do this, this, and this. What about in terms of disclosure? Publicly yeah. disclosing the method that they used in order to get to that number. Um, I don't know that there's a necessarily a a federal movement afoot to do it, but I certainly think it's a best practice. I don't know how many students or parents will actually do it, but I just think having it public and transparent allows experts to kind of look over the data and see what's happening. Uh, I'm just sort of sour on most things where you wouldn't publish your methodology or, or make it available in some way, even if hardly anybody's looking at it. Sure. So we have, uh, we have one more question for you. Yeah. Um, when I said we haven't had many policy discussions on the program, uh, that's true, but we have had one which was really interesting. We did have um, Amy Gadara, who at the time was the uh, director and CEO of the Data Quality Campaign, and the Data Quality Campaign, um, for those of you who haven't listened, um, was sort of a, uh, a national, basically, almost political campaign. It was a campaign to try and encourage states to get up to speed on student longitudinal educational data systems, SLEDs, where there's a unit record level uh, for every student, tracking them as much through the education system and into the labor force as possible. Yeah. Um, and as someone who is up on federal policy and someone uh, we don't talk to a lot of folks who are up on federal policy, can you give us maybe a bit of an update and a bit of sort of where that is at in terms of um, state success with that, whether there have been any initiatives at the federal level or at the state level that yeah. have come from that, um, and whether or not NASFA has a position on you know unit record analysis of kind of data pipelines yeah, this is a this is another um, complicated subject that's gotten more complicated probably in the last two years. So NASFA does does have a position. We we support a federal student unit record, um, and and uh, that means for anybody in college, we are tracking them regardless of where they're attending and where they might transfer to, for the simple reason that if we want to have good federal public policy, um, we actually need to know what happens to students regardless of where they tend. So, so people I think probably know right now we do a good job of tracking first time, full time students, which is not even like 50% of college students. Um, most people are, are non-traditional. They might've gone in and out. They're not first time, full time. Um, now I, I know we're in the beltway, so I can't say that without like a million caveats. So let me, let me tell you why I'm a little more sour on some of this and I'm okay with student schools linking up and even some state initiatives at the federal level. Let me just give you one example. Um, so I think you're probably familiar with deferred action, which is for, um, you know, our undocumented students. Right. So under the Obama administration, they said, basically come register with us and we will not take any action on you because of your undocumented status. And if you go into the military or go to college uh, and don't get into trouble with the law, um, we're going to allow you to stay in this country, work, contribute, be, I mean, this is the country they know, their children. 
um, they were basically brought here before they were um, age of consent. So um, things change. New administration, we collected all of this data right. so that we could help these students. Um, states came up with student aid programs to help these undocumented students, um, partially using some of these databases that we use to collect who's, who should be grant deferred action to so they can live and work and go to school here legally. And then on January 25th, 2017, um, when the Trump administration came in, um, there was an executive order that was called Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States. And in one of those sections, section 14, it says, um, agencies shall, to the extent consistent with applicable law, ensure that their privacy policies exclude, that's the, the key word, exclude persons who are not United States citizens or lawful permanent residents from the protections of the Privacy Act regarding personally identifiable information, which basically means that if Health and Human Services has an undocumented student, or let's say the Department of Ed, that there would be nothing that would prevent or wall off that student from also being shared with yeah. ICE or Homeland Security. And um, this is a good example of a lot of things, not the least of which is why we need Congress to be involved and not just administrations. But I got to tell you, collecting a lot of, of undocumented student data then to potentially have it used against them yeah. is just really ugly and makes me think about how much personally identifiable data we want to give to the federal government. Um, and so NASPA is supporting a very limited student unit record. If you go to a school that participates in Title IV and you take no Title IV, I mean, to what right does the federal government have to know that which colleges you attend and which programs you attended and whether you failed or succeeded in those? And I used to think, well, what difference does it make? I, I don't know. Well, I, I think that the argument, would, the argument that uh, the data quality campaign would make, and it's preposterous for me, what I believe their argument would be yeah. is that if we don't have a pretty comprehensive universe of data, we're never going to know if the systems that we're funding and that we're working on are effective. Agreed. And so if you have this sort of selection bias in one way or the other, um, that you're ending up with some students being in there and some students not being in there, and then your entire evaluation using those data, all the policies you make from those data might not be correct. Totally. Um, yes. And so I, I think that that would be their argument. I think that you know, I am in zero position to advocate on someone else's behalf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what we tend to say a lot of times, you know, more we always like more data rather than less data. Um, so what I'm hearing from you is that we should collect all this data, but all databases should just explode after, <laughs> say, like three years and seven months. Maybe, maybe that's the solution. I guess what I'm saying is um, there was a time I was not concerned about the federal government having um, a certain amount of personally identifiable data. And um, I, I just think being close, you know, financial aid offices end up being very close to undocumented students and the financial challenges they chase attending, that they have attending. And uh, I just saw how data collected with the best of intentions, um, thankfully the court stepped in and have provided a stay, but with the change in administration, um, ultimately could have been used against a lot of students that we had spent a lot of time and resources defending. Sure. Yeah. So I, I just don't know. It, um, it's, it's complicated. And it then we, complicated. we would argue, I think, you know, you could have the argument that the personally identifiable part is what just needs to be scrubbed. Um, but so it's more and, longitudinal? Well, no. So that I mean, you, so it's so more, you have a unit record, but that they couldn't actually find who that person is uh, if they wanted to. Yeah. You, you, dis, you, know, you sever whatever tie there is between the identifiable information and the unit record, but that unit record still carries all the educational information with it. That being said, 
any MIT faculty member, computer science faculty member would yep. just tell you that that can be re-identified yep. in pretty, pretty uh, just back out in of a, the data. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the the idea that anything is ever totally de-identified is seemingly getting to be a, a bit of a lark. That's not totally true. So it's, that's an interesting perspective. It, it is. Well, and, and, you know, again, the, the, those of us who are data-oriented probably do have the starting point of more data is better. Why wouldn't you want to have this more data? Uh, the, these data are, are really helpful. And yeah, it's um, they can be like lots of things. They can be weaponized, and, and yeah, really well said. For sure. Yeah, security and privacy; those are two separate issues. And um, I probably wouldn't have been as concerned about it two, three years ago that I as I am today. But anyway, data, data like uh, like like bricks can be used to to build magnificent things, and they can also be used to smash windows. Right. So all right, so uh, we really do appreciate the time. I had, and Brad said it's one question. I actually have one one additional question. Okay. Uh, I saw in your bio on, online that you have been on the Today Show. How did we do? <laughs> and are we are we better than Savannah Guffrey? Yeah. Uh, are we okay? I mean, yeah. how, did we do okay? Uh, I mean, you did all right. <sighs> it was it was all right. You, what were you on the Today Show for? Was it NASFA related? <laughs> yeah, or were you making like that? <laughs> I, I was because, not on a cooking yeah, segment. I, oh, I, I had dude. the impression you would like make an omelet or yeah, something. Yeah, like that would have been, no, been phenomenal. I make a, a hell of a reverse sear on a steak, but <laughs> okay. other than that, I'm, nice. I'm not nice. I'm not great at cooking. So, so Justin, we were talking about the minimum Pell Grant amount, yeah. and I was just curious if you would be able to uh, illuminate us on what the minimum amount is. Yeah, we've yeah. had a little <laughs> bit of debate about that, yes, yes, and we've yes. gotten a little bit more clear. Can, yes, you, yes, can yes. you help us out with that now? So the, the minimum Pell Grant is actually a formula that's driven by partially appropriation and partially what the maximum grant is. So it's around $600. Awesome. So I, I know it's you went to $1, but but just for accuracy, it's around $600. Okay. Right. And the maximum is around $6,000. Yeah, we're just, just crossing over the $6,000 mark. Excellent. Well, Very good. Well, Justin Drager, president of NASPA, we do appreciate you joining us on the wait list. We, we appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all that you do. A big thank you to Justin Drager. Again, president of the NASFA organization. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the waitlist. We want to hear from you. So you can tweet at us at waitlist. Um, please do us a favor and leave us a rating on iTunes. Share the podcast. Uh, give us a rating. Tell us what you think. And we always appreciate that. Um, and take our PodTrack listener survey. Um, and if you haven't done so in a while, if you've already done one, please turn in another one. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us to get really really in-depth feedback on what you like about this show and what we could be doing better um, and uh, you can find that survey at capturehighered.com forward slash waitlist you can also become a friend of the show on the untapped app to check out the beers we enjoy during this podcast you can find out where you can get them in your hometown just search for the waitlist podcast in the add a friend section of the app and let us know what your favorite beer is and we'll include it in future episodes of the show Thanks so much for making us part of your day, and cheers, Brad. Cheers, Tom. Mm-hmm.